Hello, this is Colby Nelson. I am doing my first podcast. Uh, I've called it Religious Reckonings. And my topic for today's podcast is going to be the SRA Master Narrative and the McMartin Preschool Trial. Uh, I found this topic very fascinating when going through uh, the book, Abusing Religions, or Abusing Religion, I should say. Um, and I definitely thought the way that Megan Goodwin wrote this, you know, kind of this piece in the book was a very interesting take on, you know, kind of how a trial that I never heard of could seem so intriguing and interesting. Uh, the choice of words that she used were phenomenal. So this uh, kind of, you know, trial and uh, topic that starts, if you haven't ever heard of it, it starts on page 54 of our book, Abusing Religion. And it takes place in California, uh, specifically Kern County, California, uh, mainly Manhattan Beach. Uh, and it takes place in a preschool. And this mom, her name is Judy Johnson, accuses the uh, kind of the runners or the owners of the preschool, uh, Mr. Buckley, uh, specifically, kind of, of, you know, molesting and sodomizing her son. And it's a very interesting topic to talk about because as we look at it, uh, as, as you kind of dissect how this trial can take place and how we, we look at it, um, at first, as I'm reading this, you know, this trial and I'm reading this kind of aspect of, of SRA. So for those of you don't, who don't know what SRA means, SRA means satanic ritual abuse. Um, so kind of we, uh, people have been possessed uh, or they've been uh, kind of force-fed information about uh, abusers by either therapists, by doctors, by people that are interviewing them who want them to kind of go one side or the other. Uh, that is what SRA means. And so that whole master narrative is the concept of kind of essentially the interviewers or the people who are talking to could be uh, nicknamed or deemed the masters. And so that was a really interesting topic to go over because I've taken plenty of law classes. I've taken uh, no religious classes, but I am um, of Christian faith. And it's not really ever something you hear about. Uh, specifically, you know, kind of ritual abuse has never been talked about in church. Uh, we never have really talked about, you know, the, the meaning of what Satan kind of could mean or how he plays into the Bible. It's really not touched on. Uh, and I wish I had more information on that. But uh, being I am a, um, a homosexual male uh, and my church did not agree with my beliefs. They did not believe that. Um, my beliefs in the church or beliefs and how we were dissecting our passages uh, were in line with what they were going to talk about. So I was kicked out of church um, at the age of 16 and was not allowed to go back to my church. And since then, I've had a really hard time kind of believing in anything religious. And so this class, uh, REL 150, uh, allowed me to kind of take a deeper dive into, I mean, my apologies, Ariel 151 uh, has allowed me to take a deeper dive into this class and kind of into the whole, you know, realm of religion and religious studies going back, you know, way, 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 way back in time. Uh, and it's been really helpful because it's, it's allowed me to kind of process kind of what's going on, my emotions and how I'm feeling. Um, I am a very open and honest person about when I talk about things. Uh, and I was recently diagnosed with uh, chronic depression, severe anxiety, uh, a couple of insomnia and sleep-wake disorders, uh, as well as PTSD relating to another form of abuse. Uh, when I was 11, so just a little bit of background information on what I just talked about, I have been experiencing you know, issues with my mental health since I was nine years old. 
um, being that I was trying to find out my own sexual identity, it took me a long time to not suppress it. Um, it took me up until about three, four months ago to kind of accept that I was who I am and there's no point in hiding who I am anymore. I got to be authentic in who I am. And that's the best way for me to, you know, kind of come to terms with, with my sexuality, with my mental health, uh, and kind of make a more positive impact on my life. Uh, and so touching back to what I just talked about, when I was 11, um, my aunt got married to her husband. Uh, they have four kids now. They live in San Diego. And so this is really close to where they live. Um, and so that, that kind of intrigued me a little bit more. But um, one of her friends uh, got extremely drunk and decided to grab me in an attempt to kidnap me. Um, it was a very harrowing experience. I was taken. Um, he tried to take me to a bedroom. I don't know what he was going to do, but I can only imagine what he was attempting to. Uh, he kept whispering in my ear. Um, and just kind of making like really sexually gross comments. Uh, I hit him and punched him. I scratched at him. I tried to like get myself away from him. I screamed really loudly. Um, and my father luckily heard me before anything, you know, sexually. I wasn't, you know, uh, I wasn't raped, thank goodness. But um, it's really affected kind of my overall. I really had never processed this, right? I never looked at this. And as we touched, as we started reading this, this book, um, a wave of emotion and a wave of, you know, kind of feeling um, and thoughts came rushing back. Um, and something I had never really thought about before. And uh, it took me three days of reading this book to go to bed. Uh, I wanted to read this book and digest it. And I knew that I had to do this topic of, you know, kind of uh, accusing of, you know, sexual abuse and molestation. Um, like I said, I was never raped. I was touched inappropriately. Um, and I look back on this and I, it's affected me in relationships. It's affected me in kind of being comfortable with who I am, um, especially being a gay male, right? I am, would be engaging in activities with, with other men and the kind of reservation that I have now with even putting myself out there. I, I've tried many times to be in relationships and I can never go forward with even like really dating these people for very long because there's always that blocker of, can I trust them? Can I trust them to not, you know, violate me or my personal space? Uh, and that's really affected me. It's not something I'd ever really talked about. And so this class uh, and this kind of this platform gave me the opportunity to kind of digest it and understand what had happened in my life. And I think that's something that's really important to talk about um, I have for years done work on uh, mental health uh, and breaking the stigmas around male mental health. And I think that was another thing kind of going through this. Uh, I've always been interested in psychology of people uh, and psychological studies. Uh, and when we were touching on this and we talked, we touched on this in the discussion that we had this week in class of if the kids who had been, you know, kind of forced had this information, because what, what turned out to happen was a lot of these, um, a lot of these parents, a lot of these kids who were, you know, they had told their parents that they had been, you know, that they had been inappropriately touched. These parents were coming up with these stories, right? They, they, they hadn't happened to the kids. These parents and the interviewees, um, Dr. Larry Pazder, Pazder, my apologies, um, had force-fed these kids the information to, to tell, you know, the people in trial, right? That negatively affects kids. And so I read a, a study that was done. It was an article written by the LA Times, written back uh, 
roughly December of last year uh, that I talked about a couple of the people. Uh, they were they're in their mid forties now, or they were in their mid forties, uh, late thirties to early forties. The oldest one is forty five. Uh, were found dead in their homes, um, roughly around the same area of California. Uh, they all had kind of stayed in the same area, and they were all found dead within about six months of each other. And it was kind of the psychological or the the study of their you know their their psycho makeup, uh, you could say, or kind of their their brain activity, and it was determined that when they had been forced with this information that had affected them and their whole lives, right? They didn't know who to trust. They didn't know if they could trust, you know, if, if any relationship they're gonna be in. And as I looked back on that, I was like, I relate to these people. Uh, I didn't think I was gonna make it to my 16th birthday. I didn't think I was gonna make it to my 18th birthday. I never thought I'd make it to college, right? Um, and I can't even imagine, you know, if, if I had been sexually abused or if I had been raped or, you know, touched any further where I would be. I don't even know if I would be able to sit here giving this presentation and say that I was able to read this book and, and kind of process this and talk about it. I've always been a very vocal person in my life and never have really, you know, hid away from things. But this has always been the biggest aspect of my life that I've never talked about. I've helped so many people with their mental health. Uh, I've helped so many people get help. And it took me, you know, nine, 10 years of doing that to realize, I needed to get my life in check, right? I could help, I could only help so many people before I was hurting myself to the point where I didn't know if I was gonna make it. Um, and so going back to this story, I know that was a little bit of uh, a tangent on my life, but I think it's really good to get backstory on kind of who I am and what made me choose this topic. So as we're going back um, to page 54 um, and this whole McMartin preschool trial, it was the most expensive and lengthy trial in the history of the court systems running for seven years and costing roughly $15 million out of pocket. That's a lot of money for people to have to pay in court systems. It's a lot of money to have ended up wasted, right? And I guess you wouldn't, some people would say that the money wasn't wasted, right? You want to take these kids' claims and what the parents are saying that their kids have told them into 100% seriousness. You want to believe them because kids don't normally say that, right? Kids don't normally come up with those things that like, I've been touched inappropriately. Um, there are stories, and this book mentions it on page 55, uh, where they had like deliberately dressed up as members. Um, they had, it says here, for instance, um, and these are, these, by the way, uh, trigger warning for anyone else who may listen to this besides my professor. Um, these are not easy topics to hear about, right? These are not easy topics to talk about. I will put a trigger warning in this that talks about sexual abuse, uh, molestation, um, kind of, you know, uh, not so fun topics that are, you know, hard for a lot of people to hear. Um, it says here, the children's interviews included tales of the ritualistic ingestion of feces, urine, blood, semen, and human flesh, the disinterment and mutilation of corpses, the sacrifices of infants, and the orgies with their daycare providers, costumed as devils and witches, in the classrooms, in tunnels under the center, and in car washes, airplanes, mansions, cemeteries, hotels, ranches, gourmet food stores, local gyms, churches, and hot air balloons, to name a few. That takes serious preparation. And that takes a lot of coercing by parents in order to make those things up. And the fact that humans can do that, right? The fact that humans can have planned that out so much that they want to tell their kids that, that they come up with this huge story in their brain um, is crazy, absolutely bonkers that this can happen, right? And so, uh, like I said, over this, this uh, course of this six or seven year investigation, 
uh, seven of the uh, current or former employees that were working at the time of this trial of the McMartin Preschool, which included the owner, uh, Mrs. McMartin, um, kind of the namesake of the preschool, her daughter, Peggy McMartin Buckley, and her husband, or I mean, Bucky, my apologies, and uh, Peggy's husband, Raymond, uh, Mr. Bucky, were charged with 52 counts of felony child abuse. Um, and they went through two trials, and that's why it took so long, right? It took uh, a lengthy amount of time to go through the, uh, the trial the first time. Uh, and it was determined that they were accused or they were charged on 52 counts of felony child abuse um, because the evidence, or I should say, however, the evidence that they had conjured or the evidence that they had found was not consistent with the claims that had been made by the parents, right? There was no... Um, tracings of human matter on anything in the preschool. But because it was said by children, you want to believe them until they've been proven innocent, right? You want, they've been proven guilty. And until they can prove their 100% innocence, you don't want to let them off the hook. So it went, to, it went through the first trial. They were accused, right? Um, and they, investigators identified 369 current or past enrollees in the preschool over the past two decades as victims of this abuse. Uh, and these were a lot of similar, you know, things that have been talked about. And that's crazy. That's a huge number of kids, right? You don't hear about this. I, like I said, I'd never heard about this as any topic that's ever been discussed um, in any law class I've been in. And I was trying to think back. I asked my law professor that I had for a law class last year. And I was like, how come we've never talked about this case? We've never talked about anything involving child abuse, sexual abuse, um, anything involving, you know, anything under the age of 18. We've only ever talked about murder trials. Um, and it was, he had never really heard of the trial. Like it had been brought up in law school, but he had never, they never touched on it, right? No one had focused on it uh, to kind of give, you know, the, they, no one has ever dissected it uh, in a law class before. And I found that super important that I was going to talk about this. Um, and so going over to, we're going to kind of jump over real quick to satanic ritual abuse. Um, so satanic ritual abuse is, like I said, it's the process of uh, either the, the parents, the interviewers, kind of either being possessed by Satan or the kind of overall, um, I don't really know how to put this in a way where it doesn't sound, you know, too opinionated. Um, Satanists, when they come to it, obviously, right, they want to sacrifice themselves for Satan. They want to sacrifice themselves um, to their holy kind of, their holy being, who they believe is the most important person in their life. And that is, that is Satan, right? That is who they believe is their divine human being. That's who they believe in. Um, and so as we go through this and we kind of dissect it, uh, satanic ritual abuse um, is a lot more present than I had ever heard about. And this is another thing that we talked about in class. I had a fellow classmate who one of their family members had experienced ritual abuse um, when they were younger. And I had never heard about that, right? I was very in the dark. Uh, I have grown up in a small town uh, in Western Washington, roughly eight, 9,000 people in population. We've never had any sort of scandal. The church I used to go to um, for, uh, I am a business major uh, and the purse or the, the pastor at the church we used to do our business conferences at was recently, about a year or two ago, accused on about 45 counts of um, molesting children, uh, Catholic uh, priest, I should say. Um, that was a huge case in our area because I had been to that church before with friends, and that's crazy, right? 
it, it kind of these past few weeks have opened up my eyes to a lot of things that have been there in my life or have been around me, but I've never, ex I've never paid attention to them. I've never accepted them. I've never really gone through and dissected them to any means. Um, so as we touch on this, this topic of satanic ritual abuse, um, it was known as the satanic panic or the name that was given. And it was kind of a, a big group of false allegations made against daycare centers in the eighties. Um, it sparked a lot of uh, kind of media attention. Uh, a couple of TV shows came out. Um, a, a couple of things talking about the exorcist. Um, I'm getting my information from uh, an article written on Vox, uh, VOX.com, and I'll be attaching these um, either in my description at the end of this podcast or in my artist statement or um, another forum of all of my sources, um, to, just to kind of show where I got all of my information from. And so this satanic panic, right? It's it, all of these claims kind of relied on like the basis of um, substantiate or ups, unsubstantiated, my apologies, uh, or yeah, ups, unsubstantiated, my goodness, it's hard to talk today, um, statements from children or kind of the coercive and kind of suggestive, not interrogation per se, but I guess in a sense interrogation uh, by therapists, by prosecutors, by parents who had come out with these stories and wanted their kids to kind of follow along with what they said, right? So they're gonna tell their kids, this is what you need to say. Uh, this is a 100% completely illegal in every context, but a lot of times parents don't get charged with it because if it's not caught in the act, it's really, really, really hard to charge a parent with doing that. However, these kids who were caught up in these, you know, these 80s issues, um, 70s and 80s, I should say, came out publicly and apologized in a number of articles, uh, apologizing to the people who they accused, who uh, they apologized for their parents, you know, kind of being, um, their parents for being greedy and wanting money and wanting people, you know, they've been possessed by Satan and they've been possessed by this ideal that, you know, Satan was telling them that they needed to sacrifice these people for their children. They needed to sacrifice their children um, to put these people in jail. And that's, again, coming from someone who's never, ever even touched in that realm. I've never done anything with a Ouija board. I've never really, you know, interacted with any spirits, with any, you know, religious aspect of that because I've been really, you know, afraid of it my whole life. Um, to hear these stories of people, some from people I know, um, this is another big thing about doing this, this topic or these topics was discussing this with other people who I had gone to church with or people in my community. And I interviewed a couple people that I talked about. Um, and there's a couple people that I went to church with who were like, yeah, this was talked about in our small groups, right? These are things that were talked about in kind of like our women's groups or, um, the adult kind of church groups and to hear their stories and to kind of sit down with them and digest them and know that these happen to people around me, that's a hard thing to process for someone, right? That's a hard thing to kind of come to terms with that people that you know have experienced this, right? And you're like, why did I not do anything to help out with that? But in the end, uh, kind of going through this topic, it's taken a lot of kind of restraint for me to not dive all the way into this. I have a tendency as someone who enjoys research to go too far into a topic and become fully engrossed in it and not do anything else. Like as I'm sitting here talking about this topic, I'm getting chills uh, running down like from my face into my legs as I talk about these topics because recently I've kind of tapped into this like religious potential that I have 
um, these kind of spirits, these alter egos that, you know, of people that I've talked to where they go into like these alternate, like not realities per se, but they go into the alternate personalities. Uh, and that's crazy, you know, to say coming out of my mouth, right? Through my mental health process that I've been going through for years, I've had a lot of out-of-body bo- out experiences where I kind of feel like I'm not in control of my life, right? I, I feel like I'm being possessed with something else. Um, and I sometimes, as I'm talking through this, almost, I'm, I'm almost going through one and I'm pretty good at, you know, kind of stopping those. Um, but you, you kind of become consumed in what you're, you're talking about, especially as someone who is an empathetic person. If someone tells me that something's wrong or they need help with something, let's just say I need to go get them help for, you know, an eating disorder, or I need, they need help with something, you know, spiritually, religiously, they need some help with, you know, therapy to kind of help with some of the demons that they're, you know, they're facing in their life, whatever that may be, I dive into that. I become so immersed in it. I feel like that person. Um, And it's like a totally other um, kind of part of me where I will dive in and I I will go so far into it. I will become this person Um, for a brief period of time. I will put myself so far into their shoes that I, I feel like I can physically feel their pain. Um, I feel like I could feel their pain when they tell me that their parents are yelling at them, right? When they, when their parents are, you know, degrading them for everything that they're doing, I can physically feel the pain. I've cried before out of nowhere thinking about things that have happened to other people. And this makes me emotional to talk about, um, because I'm currently kind of going through something similar with my family, right? Uh, as we've talked about this with my mental health uh, in my family, and this has been a whole topic or a whole kind of argument, um, for years with my family, and I, I am one of the only religious people in my entire family, extended family even, um, who believes enough in, in God um, and Christianity to discuss what's happening in the Bible, right? And so when I told them that I had gotten kicked out from church, I was met with a lot of kind of, I was met with a lot of like, well, we told you so, right? We told you you shouldn't have ever gone to church. This is what you get for being religious, right? You should never believe in it. You should have never touched on it. And as I sat here, right, you kind of draw away. You don't really want to engage with your family. Um, you don't really want to tell them things anymore. And that's been such a big downfall. Um, so kind of a side note as I talk about this, again, this is a very personal kind of take on what's going on, a very opinionated take, but also involving a lot of fact. Um, and I think really important things to talk about. And I really feel like it's important that this is talked about more. Um, So I'm calling this a series uh, called Religious Reckonings because I believe um, that I'm going to, over the next couple of months and after I exit this class, we'll continue to kind of go through um, some trials and some parts of religion or some cases. Um, My next one will likely be based on the FLDS, so the Fundamental Fundamentalist um, kind of sector of the Latter-day Saints, uh, and kind of dissecting this from, you know, not, not such a biased opinion, right? Someone who is, who's never really experienced these things. They've never looked at these things. Someone who will have to do a ton of research. Um, but this is such a fascinating topic to me. And I uh, have my, I'm getting my major in business management, but I'm adding uh, at least one minor, and I might be adding a second after taking this class. Uh, my minor currently is women uh, gender and queer studies. Um, I find it very important to kind of, you know, learn about the hardships that people in my community are facing, as well as just the unequal balance 
of the unequal power balance that uh, men have over women. Um, you had talked about, or my professor, uh, Dr. Coleman, had talked about this. And I know, my apologies, Dr. Coleman, for referring to you uh, not in first person. Um, but you had talked about how it's twice more likely for uh, women to either not get demoted per se, but to lose their job or get scrutinized in the workplace than men, especially as teachers. Uh, because I think we as a society don't see, um, I don't know why we've come up with this, you know, this sort of belief, but we don't see women or most people don't see women as equal to men. And I think that it's absolutely heinous in the sense of, I completely see that happening and I cannot stand it for the slightest that that is happening. I don't think, I, I think of anything, women do way more for our country and way more for our universe than men do, right? Who gives birth to, to the children that were, I'm, I'm only here because of my mom. Sure, my dad played a part in it, right? But my mom's the one who put in the nine months of work to have me. And sure, there are sometimes when I'm like, when I'm in a really bad place where I wish I wasn't ever here. Um, but I go back and I look at it. I'm like, my mom sacrificed for me and my sister 18 months of her life um, to go through, you know, daily kind of hardship, right? She did this. She chose to, but she did it because she wanted to have, she wanted to put good people out in this world. And I, I think so many people's parents, so many people's moms um, for her having them, right? I, I have so many people to be thankful for in my life because of parents and because of moms. And I'm not saying there are, I know plenty of people whose parents who, or whose moms uh, gave them up at a young age um, because they couldn't take care of them, right? And their parents either were mature enough or their parents, they were taken away from their parents. Um, and I still think those moms, right? I know plenty of people who have had bad experiences with their parents, but they still forgive them for what they've done. Um, and then I'm not saying that's an easy uh, process to do, but it's something I think that we as a society and we as a country need to thank the women in our community more for what's going on. Another thing I'm going to touch on real quick before I, I kind of wrap up this podcast, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this, kind of me not only, you know, talk about the, uh, the topics I talked about, but kind of also bring up my personal story and kind of go on some, some side notes. Um, for all of you out there who don't believe it, uh, that the LGBTQAI plus community are valid members of society, I don't, I don't have respect for you. And I, and I know that's hard to say, right? That's, that's for some people, it's going to be like a quote unquote hot take. Um, but I have faced so much oppression in my life, even being a, you know, a white male, right? I've grown up in a household where my parents were together. My family accepts me um, to an extent. Uh, they don't accept everything I do. Um, but I've even faced oppression, right? And so there's some, there's, so many people in our community out there, um, and I feel especially people who are um, who are trans, who have experienced added kind of hatred from people in in our society and people in the U.S. Not not just in the U.S. This is worldwide. People, this is I, I'm I'm just bringing up U.S. examples because they're the only ones I can really speak on from example. Um, but this is worldwide, right? Uh, but trans women are women. They are valid women. I have a person in my community um, who, um, his name is Danny. He uh, transitioned from female to male and is 38 weeks pregnant. Um, and I had always heard stories of uh, men who were pregnant 
um, as they were transitioning. And I thought that was the most fascinating thing in the world because these people are so vulnerable. They're putting themselves so far out there on the line. Um, and I think it's something incredibly, you know, empowering to be in a community where I get to see this firsthand, right? I met this person. Uh, I used to work at Starbucks in our community and I had met Danny four or five times before knowing who he was really. Uh, I used to think he was so cool. I still think he's like the coolest. Um, and to see him kind of go through his journey, he's documented it over this 37 weeks, um, has been something that I, I told myself I wasn't going to cry on this podcast, has been something that's been really impactful in my life because it's someone in my community who shows me that there's hope kind of out there for me to live the life that I want to live um, and to not let people kind of tell me that I'm not valid or that he's not valid and I can't wait to meet his his child right I can't wait to you know when corona ends to sit down with him I was already going to meet up with him at some point I haven't messaged him a couple times but he has a very 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 busy life um, life has thrown him a lot of curveballs during this pandemic uh, and if you have more questions, I'm still going to speak with him about this to make sure that, you know, I can kind of give his information out um, to the public if people ask for it. Um, but I really recommend checking him out on social media. And again, if anyone has any questions about it, I will definitely put, I will definitely send his information over after I've gotten his approval. Um, but he's a very powerful person. Uh, he is someone who, like I said, in my community specifically, has made it it's so amazing to live in a small town. And I used to hate living in a small town, right? It didn't provide me as many experiences and resources as I thought it was. Uh, but this kind of, I'm so thankful that Corona forced me to stay home. Um, being high risk, being that my family is high risk, uh, it's, it's, it's allowed me to see this process firsthand and to, to still live in the same community as him. So I can't wait for when he has his child. I can't wait to hopefully at some point meet his child and know that I've got someone in my community who is fearless, who has put it all out there, who's faced so much oppression from people, not only in our community, um, but throughout everyone who's lived on social media. People on social media are the worst. They are the rudest. I've had to block so many people on social media who didn't even know that I was, you know, part of the community or part of the LGBTQ community, um, but I've just... I am so outspoken on many issues, um, mental, you know, mental health. I'm very outspoken in politics, um, women's health. And I will touch on these on other kind of topics as we go through, as I go over other parts of this podcast. Uh, and I will make sure to kind of cover um, different aspects of, you know, kind of what's happening and different parts of oppression that exists in, in our country. Um, and so if there's anyone out there that has any, you know, topics that they want me to, to kind of go over or any, you know, kind of parts of society that they want me to go over, um, I, will, I will more than, you know, gladly go over those um, and kind of do some deeper research and give people kind of a, 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 an insight from not only a teenage point of view, but also someone who's living currently in this community in the, in the age of, of social, you know, social media social networking. Um, I might need to rename this podcast from Religious Reckonings just to <laughs> um, deeper thoughts with Colby um, because as I go through this, I'm, I, there's so many things that I want to talk about. But I know this might, I was told myself I was going to keep this like 15 minutes. It's been roughly 30, maybe longer. Um, so like I said, I appreciate you if you listened all the way to the end of this and didn't get bored. 
or didn't you know stop because you needed to do something else to do day or for listening to this uh, so thank you and if you have any questions um, please feel free to message me um, I'm gonna post this on YouTube I'll also be posting this on my social on my social media platforms um, uh, and I'll just kind of be reaching out to people and asking them if they'd be willing to give this a listen I think it's something that's really important uh, I'll also be trying to get this on Spotify in the next few weeks to get a podcaster's license um, because this is kind of a new hobby or not a new hobby but a new kind of goal of mine that over the seven week um, break that we have from uh, college uh, to kind of take my time to do some research and dive deeper into this aspect of comparative cultural studies and religious studies. Uh, I want to take a quick moment to thank uh, my professor, Dr. Coleman. She's been fantastic throughout this entire semester, um, making sure that, you know, through my kind of my mental health struggles that she has been there for me the entire time, checked on me weekly to make sure that I was holding up, making sure I was doing good in other classes. Um, uh, my classmates have been amazing. Um, it's been really powerful and really amazing to have so many amazing classmates. I've made some great friends throughout this class who have kind of, you know, helped me feel comfortable telling my story. Um, and other members of the community who are going to hear this or other members uh, who have maybe, or other people in the community who are just out there in the world who have heard or heard of other stories of, you know, ritual abuse or have heard other stories of, you know, daycares or children, uh, you know, kind of these parents that have been kind of they've brainwashed with children. If you want to share those stories with me, I'd be more than happy to listen. Or if you want to ever collaborate on a podcast, uh, if you ever want to join, uh, I normally record these through Zoom. Um, so if you ever want to, you know, talk about this, I am more than um, happy to talk about this uh, and have other people on this. Again, I thank you so much for uh, discussing this with me and for, you know, listening to me and I hope to do this some more. Thank you.